Well, today we're going to look at a few different topics. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude, second to last book in the Bible, right before the book of Revelation, so not hard to find. I'd like to draw your attention to verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put it on the screen for you as well. Jude writes this, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we can consider the scriptures. And God, as we know, the Bible is under assault today from a variety of different directions. And I pray as we consider what Jude says here regarding contending for the faith, that you would use this time to not only encourage our hearts and instruct us in your truth, but that you would use this time to also equip us to be better prepared ambassadors of Christ, people who are better able to answer atheists and skeptics and people who have departed from the faith and now have a critical view of it. So bless this time to that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever tried to talk to a non-Christian friend or coworker, maybe a family member about the Lord, only to have your claims shot out of the sky with an objection like there are no good evidences for God? Or religions, including Christianity, are responsible for most of the world's wars and suffering and atrocities? Or the God of the Old Testament commanded the Israelites to commit genocide. Or the Bible condones slavery. It oppresses women and promotes hatred of homosexuals. Many critics of Christianity today have an arsenal of these kinds of conversation-halting objections just ready to unload at the first inkling a Christian is trying to talk to them about Jesus. Have you heard any of these objections in conversations with people? If you've tried to share the gospel with people in the 21st century, you're getting this kind of pushback. Well, a question for you. Did you feel prepared? Did you feel equipped to contend for the faith, as the book of Jude tells us to do here in verse 3? What does Jude mean when he exhorts us to contend earnestly for the faith? What does that look like? Well, the word contend literally means to fight. The word earnestly means seriously or intensely, and that phrase, the faith, refers to the whole body of revealed truth contained in the Bible. So Jude, writing down words, that God, the Holy Spirit, inspired him to write, tells us, tells Christians to put up a strong, intense fight for the truth of God's word. Now, don't misunderstand him. This does not mean that we're to be getting in fist fights with people. 
known. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 tells us that we're to live peaceably with all people. As far as it depends on us, we're to live peaceably with people, even those with whom we have passionate disagreements with over politics or sports or religion. Jude is primarily talking about countering the errors, misconceptions, and false teachings about God, not with fists and guns, but with truth. God's people aren't to sit on the sidelines while the truth is being undermined and attacked. No, we're to lovingly, boldly put up a strong fight by proclaiming and defending the truth. This doesn't mean that you need to be on a street corner with a megaphone, annoying people, or that you need to stand behind a pulpit. No, you can contend for the faith over a quiet, friendly conversation at Starbucks with a friend in a normal conversation with a coworker or friends. You can contend for the faith as easily today as reposting a quote or sharing an article on Facebook. There are lots of ways that Christians can contend for the faith today. Well, to help you be better prepared to contend for the faith, this morning I'd like to offer some concise responses to several of the objections and criticisms that atheists and non-Christians are bringing up today about God and the Bible. I hope it'll be an encouragement to your faith, but that it'll also help equip you with some ways that you too can respond to some of these objections that we're hearing today. The first objection I'd like to address for just a couple of minutes concerns the topic of slavery in the Bible. It's not uncommon today to hear atheists and non-Christians say that the Bible condones slavery and that only evil, selfish men would ever concoct a book like that. How might we respond to that? Well, when someone brings this up with me, I like to point out to them that slavery was never part of God's original plan for humanity and it wouldn't exist if it weren't for mankind's sin. Slavery is never endorsed in the Bible. The Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself in both the Old and New Testaments. We're also instructed to regard one another as more important than ourselves. How then could slavery flourish if we were all loving and treating one another that way? A loving person doesn't kidnap people, lock them up, and force them to work without pay. That's terribly cruel and evil, and the biblical writers realize that. Kidnapping humans is a sin that carried the death penalty in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, verse 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. If you were found guilty of stealing and selling a human or even if you were, have, were found to have purchased a person who had been stolen, you were to be put to death. There would probably be a lot fewer abductions and kidnappings today if we did not disregard God's thoughts about the topic. 
Another verse that made it clear, kidnapping people and forcing them to be slaves is wrong, is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse seven. It says, if anyone kidnaps a fellow Israelite and treats him as a slave or sells him, the kidnapper must die. In this way, you will purge the evil from among you. So the Old Testament made it clear that these activities were wrong. What about the New Testament? Does it take a softer stand on the topic of slavery? No. In the New Testament, enslavers, men stealers, slave traders are all condemned right alongside murderers in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So then this raises the question, why do some people believe that the Bible endorses slavery? Well, I think it's because there are a handful of verses in the Bible that instruct God's people, the Israelites, in how they are to treat their servants. In biblical times, people could sell themselves to be servants, to pay off debts, and that was very common. So for the servants' sakes, God gave the Israelites instructions regarding the treatment of their servants. The instructions were actually given to protect and help the servants, not harm them or keep them down. For example, Exodus 20 verse 10 said that servants were to have every seventh day of the week off. It says there, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant. So servants, just like every other beloved member in the family, were to enjoy a day of rest every week. Deuteronomy 23 said to never mistreat a slave. In verse 15, it says, you shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. So pause there for a second. If a slave comes wandering in your town because he's on the run trying to get out of a bad situation and he shows up in your town, the Bible says he shall live with you in your midst in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. In Colossians 4, verse 1, Paul said, Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So as you can see, these instructions were given to ensure that servants were treated justly and fairly. The Bible never encouraged or endorsed the horrific kind of slavery that involved the kidnapping, selling, and mistreatment of human beings. You won't find it in the Bible. Well, the skeptic says, the God of the Old Testament commanded genocide, the wiping out of the Canaanite people in the book of Joshua. A loving God would never command such a thing. When someone brings this up with you, you might ask them this question. Have you read the Old Testament passages regarding the Canaanites? Often they haven't. They've just heard about the supposed genocide. If they do say they've read the book of Joshua, you might ask them this question. Do you recall what the Canaanites were doing that brought God's judgment on them? The answer will almost always be no. So then you might lovingly bring them up to speed on what the Bible says the Canaanites were doing at the time of Joshua. 
the Bible tells us that they were an exceedingly wicked people who were sacrificing their children to their god Molech, burning children alive. The Bible tells us that they were committing incest and adultery and polygamy and bestiality and witchcraft and a variety of other abominable customs. The Canaanites had become a dangerous threat to their posterity, to their neighbors, and to the Israelites. So God determined that the Canaanites' time on his planet was up. And so he sent in the Israelites to put a stop to the wickedness. God created the earth and all of its inhabitants, and he has the right to do whatever he deems best with his creation. All of life belongs to him. Think back with me to World War II. Most of the world today believes the Allied powers, which included the U.S., had the right to go to war against Japan and the Nazis to stop the great evils they were committing. You never hear anyone describe D-Day today as though the Americans were committing genocide. No, we look back to that generation as heroes for doing what they did. Well, if human governments have the right to send in a military force to put a stop to evildoers, doesn't God have the right? Surely he does. If our non-Christian friends who are critical of the Bible today lived at the time of Joshua and knew what was going on in the land of Canaan, I think many of them today would have been in favor of God's intervention. I do find it a bit odd that atheists today commonly say, well, if God exists, he should intervene and put a stop to evil and suffering. In the book of Joshua, we have a great example of God putting a stop to some of the evil, and atheists like to point to that passage and say, a loving God would never do that. Hmm. It seems to me that no matter what God does, people who want nothing to do with him find fault. Well, the skeptic says, surely God doesn't exist. If he did, he'd just appear to us in a public setting and prove it to the world. Well, people who raise this objection overlook the fact that God has already done this when he came to the earth in the person of Jesus. He raised the dead, healed cripples, opened the eyes of the blind, proved he was God in the flesh. And what happened? Did everyone repent and believe in him? No. They dragged him away and nailed him to a cross. One of the reasons God doesn't appear to people today is because he knows that wouldn't change their hearts. And God knows that he's already provided enough evidence for his existence for those who truly want to know him. What evidence, someone asks? How about the fine-tuning of the universe? How about the mind-boggling complexity of living organisms or the information encoded into DNA? How about hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in the Bible or the historical evidence for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection just for starters? I agree with Norman Geisler, that great Bible scholar who recently went home to be with the Lord 
He wrote this, he said, God has provided enough evidence in this life to convince anyone willing to believe, yet he has also left some ambiguity so as not to compel the unwilling. In this way, God gives us the opportunity to either love him or to reject him without violating our freedom. I so agree with that. I also concur with J.P. Moreland, who I know spoke here recently, who said this. He said, God maintains a delicate balance between keeping his existence sufficiently evident so people will know he's there and yet hiding his presence enough so that people who want to choose to ignore him can do it. This way, their choice of destiny is really free. God is so wise. He maintains that perfect balance, just enough evidence for people who want to know him and hidden just enough so that people who want nothing to do with him can freely go on their way. I love that insight by JP. Well, the skeptic says, you know, maybe God exists, but the Bible was written by men. It's not trustworthy. When someone tells me that, I like to lovingly point out to them that their conclusion doesn't follow from their premise. Just because something was written by men doesn't mean it's not trustworthy. If what men write is not trustworthy, we'd have to throw out encyclopedias, dictionaries, uh, automobile manuals, everything the IRS sends us. Written by men, <laughs> toss it out. Men are quite capable of communicating truthfully, especially when they have God's help, as the biblical authors did. Many who think that the Bible today is just a collection of fables and legends overlook the fact that there's a wealth of evidence for its reliability. Of course, I'm talking about its hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, thousands of archaeological discoveries, its incredible internal harmony, uh, historical confirmation in the records of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans, different scientific discoveries that have verified details in the Bible. There was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, as well as the writings of Flavius Josephus, Flavius Josephus, which confirmed several details, again, for us in the Bible. Well, all right, the skeptic says, but, but after the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian in 8312, the Roman Empire took control of the Bible and tampered with its contents to better control the people. Well, if someone tells you that, you might ask them this question, how did you come to that conclusion? How did you come to that conclusion? They probably picked it up in the fictional novel, The Da Vinci Code, uh, written back in 2003. That best-selling novel planted all kinds of false ideas in the minds of people throughout Western culture regarding the Bible that just aren't true. Friends, there isn't a shred of evidence that the Roman Empire ever tampered with any of the contents of the Bible and the ancient handwritten manuscript copies of the Bible that predate the time of Constantine prove this to be the case. 
What do I mean? Well, we know what the Bible said before Constantine was even born around A.D. 280. And when we compare the Bible we have and use today to those ancient manuscript copies of the Bible, we see that it says the same thing that it said all the way back in the first, second, and third centuries. If you could use some additional help defending the trustworthiness of the Bible, of course my books and DVDs can help you in that area. Another objection I've been hearing more and more today has to do with the size of the universe. Atheists say the universe is so vast, it's foolish to think a God built a universe billions of light years across just to have a personal relationship with you. In other words, it's absurd to think that God would create all of these galaxies and stars if our tiny planet was really the focus of his love. Well, in response to that, I would first note that the enormity of something has absolutely no bearing on whether or not God exists, for God could have several good reasons for creating the universe the way he did including the knowledge that his creatures would find it quite beautiful to look up at a sky full of stars. In reality, the enormity of the universe proves to be more of a problem for the atheistic viewpoint. Why is that? Well, the world's leading atheistic authors and philosophers today believe that every star, planet, and galaxy in the cosmos sprang into existence from what Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking said was literally nothing. Friend, that requires an enormous amount of faith. For the thinking person realizes that nothing cannot do something, let alone turn itself into billions of stars and planets. Christians think it's more reasonable to conclude that the stars testify to the existence of an incredibly powerful creator. We agree with David, who said that the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the worlds. The enormous galaxies and stars testify to the fact that God exists. Now, of course, if the atheist was God, maybe he or she would have created a tiny little planet with no stars, No galaxies for us to look up at and be amazed with, but the true and living God decided to create a massive universe full of billions of stars and interesting things for us to look up at and be in awe of. And aren't you glad that he did? How beautiful it is to behold the stars on a clear, dark night. You know, if God, had made a tiny, if God had made a tiny universe with no stars or planets out there for us to look at, I can just hear atheists complaining and saying, well, you know, if God was really such a great and powerful creator, he should have made a massive universe and displayed his creative abilities. But, of course, that's the very thing he did make, and they scoff. 
Again, no matter what God does, those who want nothing to do with him find fault. The rest of us will happily worship him. Amen? Well, Charlie, it's a fact that humans are the product of evolution. Of course, when it comes to the topic of evolution, atheists commonly state that it is settled science and a proven fact. Well, this is certainly not the case. There are insurmountable problems with the once there was nothing and now we have humans theory of evolution. First, the theory can't even get off the ground when you start with what Richard Dawkins says was literally nothing. For as I mentioned a moment ago, nothing cannot do anything. But even if the universe was able to spring into existence from nothing and eventually produce the kind of environment necessary for thousands of different life forms to exist, there are still so many more problems. I won't get into all of them, of course, this morning, but one fatal blow to the theory of evolution that I think all Christians should be familiar with is what's called the fossil record. The fossil record, if evolution really is the explanation for all of life, the fossil record should show continuous and gradual changes from the bottom layer to the top layer, but it doesn't. Nearly all groups of animals appear in the fossil record suddenly, simultaneously, fully developed and with absolutely no hint that they evolved from anything else. This is devastating to the theory. And the so-called ape men fossils that have been put forth over the past century as proof for human evolution have over and over again turned out to be an embarrassment to evolutionists. Consider Piltdown Men. In 1912, in the village of Piltdown, England, an amateur paleontologist found part of a human skull and part of an ape-like lower jaw with two teeth in it. Well, scientists hailed the discovery as a major missing evolutionary link between apes and humans. For 40 years, it was taught in schools as proof of human evolution until it was exposed as a colossal hoax. Forty years after the bones were put forth as evidence for human evolution, a team of scientists at the University of Oxford proved that the Piltdown skull belonged to a modern human and the jaw fragment belonged to a modern orangutan. It was also discovered that the jaw had been chemically treated to make it look like a fossil and its teeth had been deliberately filed down to make them look human. Piltdown man was a forgery. But what about Neanderthal man? The first human fossil assemblage described as a Neanderthal was discovered in 1856 in Neander Valley in Germany. School children were taught for decades that Neanderthal man was proof of human evolution. But now, with the help of DNA technology, we've learned that Neanderthals were just humans. Not ape men or ancestors of modern humans, just humans. How about Nebraska men? 
Nebraska Man, as depicted in this artistic propaganda from the time, was based off a 1917 discovery of a single tooth in Nebraska. <laughs> Pretty incredible what an artist can come up with based off one tooth. Well, evolutionary scientists were certain that the tooth was from an ape man. It was loudly and proudly put forth as proof of human evolution until many years later when it was proved just to be the tooth of an ordinary pig. <laughs> what about Lucy? Unearthed in 1974 in Ethiopia, a collection of fossilized bones was boldly proclaimed as the ancestor of all humanity in newspapers, textbooks, on television shows, and in museums. But evolutionary researchers have more recently concluded that she should no longer be considered an ancestor of humans. Surprise, surprise. What about Ida? I'm sure you heard about her back in 2009. In 2009, the press hailed the fossilized remains named Ida as the missing link in human evolution and the eighth wonder of the world. But Ida was more recently reclassified as a small-tailed extinct primate, an ancestor not of humans, but of lemurs. Oops. Friends, the fossil record has been and always will be an embarrassment to the theory of evolution. And we know why. We were created by God. All right, this next objection has become popular on the internet. Atheists and skeptics say, if God exists, why won't he just heal an amputee by restoring his limb? Then we would all know he exists. Atheists around the globe have kind of come together and decided that this would be the one sufficient proof that they would all accept, all of them that got together and came up with this, that they would accept as proof that God exists. If he would just heal the missing limb of one amputee somewhere around the world, we will believe God exists. And so they've created websites now with the amputee dilemma, and they're asking people to send in proof, and, and, and no proof has come in, so they continue to use this as a way to say or prove to people that God must not exist. Question for you. Do you think if people reported that a man whose arm had been amputated and had his arm miraculously restored in answer to a prayer that many atheists would repent and place their faith in Jesus? I have a hard time envisioning that. Think back to that night Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and how he miraculously restored the missing ear of the high priest's servant. Did the people repent and believe in Jesus when they beheld the miracle? No. In fact, they continued arresting him, then led him off to be brutally beaten and put to death on a cross just a few hours later. Well, how about the time Jesus raised dead people? back to life those were greater miracles than restoring missing limbs surely everyone would repent and believe in jesus after those astounding miracles no those who hated jesus concluded that his miracles were accomplished by demonic powers matthew chapter 12 tells us but what if jesus empowered his followers to work lots of miracles maybe people would believe in him then well, that's the very thing Jesus did with his first disciples. 
He sent them out into the world with the power to perform miracles. And according to the Gospels and the book of Acts, God wrought many miracles through the disciples. And they were subsequently beaten, imprisoned, and put to death by people who didn't want to repent. People who want to continue in sin are always able to find an excuse to reject God. So miracles really aren't that effective at changing people's minds or hearts. They rarely produce the effects that atheists tell us that they would. Quoting Abraham, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 16, verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, if they have no interest in the written word of God, their minds will not be changed by miraculous acts of God. Another common objection we're hearing more and more today concerns the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. Critics of Christianity say that, you know, Jesus said to love people, even your enemies. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Christians' rejection of homosexuals is downright hateful. Christians who hold to biblical instructions regarding human sexuality are often called hateful today. Well, in response to that, our view towards same-gender sexual behavior should not be viewed or understood to mean that Christians reject or hate the persons engaging in that behavior. I have five kids at home, and I view some of their behavior unfavorably. And I even tell them occasionally, what you're doing is sinful. It's not pleasing to God. Question for you, does that mean that I hate my kids? No. I actually speak up about the topic because I love them. Disagreeing with a person over an activity does not equal hatred. Our culture wants us to think that, but it's illogical. If disagreeing equaled hatred, our critics would be guilty of the very behavior they accuse Christians of, hatred, because they disagree with us. So we distinguish between the person and the practice. It's only same-gender sexual activity we're opposed to, not the persons engaging in that activity. The Bible instructs Christians to be kind to all. That's how we're to treat people. We're to be kind to them, compassionate with them, even if we disagree about some of their choices. It doesn't mean that we have to endorse or approve, though, of all of their activities. You can love someone and disagree with certain decisions that they make. Well, Charlie, Jesus never said a word about homosexual activity. If it was sinful or even important to God, he surely would have addressed it. Well, there are some problems with this conclusion. First, the Gospels don't record any specific instruction of Jesus on a lot of things that we know to be wrong, like bestiality, rape, and incest, for example. 
Jesus may have mentioned those behaviors. The Gospels don't record for us everything he ever said. But we don't take the lack of recorded instruction on these activities to mean that they must be okay, for they are condemned elsewhere in the Bible. Secondly, Jesus affirmed the authority and trustworthiness of the Old Testament scriptures where homosexual activity is clearly condemned. Thirdly, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus explicitly reaffirmed the Genesis account of marriage that describes marriage as the one flesh union of one man and one woman. And fourthly, Jesus condemned the sin of pornea, a Greek word that encompassed every kind of sexual sin, adultery, fornication, bestiality, prostitution, incest, and homosexuality in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7. So this objection that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality falters as a way of justifying homosexual activity. All right, Charlie, but the Bible is oppressive and harmful to women. If someone brings up this objection with you, you might ask her or him, have you read the entire Bible or... Did you just pick up that line somewhere? Now, you have to watch your tone, okay? I'm not encouraging you to be snarky here, you know. Have you ever read the Bible? No. No, just out of curiosity, okay? have Have you read the Bible? If they say, yes, I have read the Bible, you might follow up with this question, what passages in the Bible did you find most oppressive? Tell me about them and see what they say. I've been reading and studying the Bible since God rescued me in 1990. Uh, And it's clear to me, and I'm sure to most of you who've studied the Bible, that the God of the Bible loves and cherishes women. Husbands, that's a good place to say amen right there. Amen. (laughs) And and it doesn't matter what I think about it, millions of women around the world who read the Bible have concluded that God loves and cherishes women. They've understood that the Bible says men and women are both made in the image of God and are equally valuable and important to God. They've read Paul's instructions for husbands to love their wives even as Jesus loves them and was willing to lay down his life on the cross for their sins. They've read the passages where men are told to do nothing from selfishness and to even consider women to be more important than themselves, Philippians 2, verse 3. They've read about the wonderful friendships Jesus had with women like Mary and Martha, and how he healed several women. They've read about women like Ruth, Deborah, Priscilla, and others who are portrayed in the Bible in a wonderful light, and they've understood that the Bible condemns activities that hurt women like physical and emotional abuse, adultery, abandoning one's wife, and rape. Friends, if people would follow the teachings of the Bible more closely, the world would be a much better place today for women. You can be sure of that. All right, this next objection has to do with wars and suffering. Atheists and skeptics commonly say religions, Christianity included, are responsible for most of the world's wars, suffering, and atrocities. 
Unfortunately, religious terrorists, greedy televangelists, child molesting priests, and others have done things that are terribly hurtful to people, and that's very unfortunate. But there are two things I think critics of Christianity overlook when they raise this particular objection. First, Jesus and his teachings are not to blame for the evils people commit. Anything evil or sinful a person does goes against Jesus's instructions. Jesus taught us to love people and to treat others like we would like to be loved and treated. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. You want people to treat you kindly and lovingly? to forgive you and to be gracious with you, well, then you be loving and kind and forgiving with people. It's known as the golden rule. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus said, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. If people would follow the teachings of Jesus today, the world would be much more loving. So while religious people have caused some suffering, let's not lay any of the blame for the world's evils at Jesus' feet. A second thing commonly overlooked when people blame the world's suffering on religious people is this. Atheists and non-religious people have caused a lot of suffering as well. Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, and Mao Zedong murdered as many as a hundred million people in just a few decades of the 20th century. That is far more than those who were put to death by theists of any stripe over the past five centuries. So it just isn't true that religions are responsible for most of the world's wars and suffering. All right, let me respond to one last objection. If you're out sharing the gospel with people, it's not uncommon to hear someone say, you should stop trying to force your beliefs on people. Well, I think it's probably pretty rare that Christians are out there trying to force their beliefs on people. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the grave three days later, he told his followers to share the good news with the whole world. So that's really what Christians are attempting to do. We're not trying to force people to convert to Christianity. We're simply explaining God's gracious offer of forgiveness and everlasting life to people. We believe that it's news that's too good to keep to ourselves. If someone had the cure for a deadly disease and kept it to himself, people would consider it a crime. Well, the good news about Jesus is better than the cure for the deadliest disease. That's why Christians share the gospel. Because of Jesus' death in your place for your sins, God is now offering forgiveness of all your sins and everlasting life as a free gift to any and all who will repent and place their faith in Jesus. What a gracious offer God has made humanity. We deserve judgment and condemnation for our sins. And God says, no, 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 I've got something way better. Everlasting life and the forgiveness of all your sins. 
What an incredible offer God has made humanity. So I encourage those of you who might be here today, maybe you've been on the run from God, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian today, I encourage you today to place your faith in Jesus. And you can do that right now. God's a prayer away. You can call upon the name of the Lord and say, God, I'm a sinner and I wanna repent. I wanna turn from my sins and place my faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Bible says if you'll do that, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So don't put it off. For the rest of you who have already done that, as I know most of you have, may the God of heaven and earth empower you and use you in a mighty way in this generation to share the gospel and to contend for the faith as we're told to do in the book of Jude, verse three. Amen? Amen. Amen. Quickly want to highlight a couple resources for you if you're interested in getting further equipped. I already mentioned the website, alwaysbeready.com. We've got lots of great uh, help there on the website. I also brought along copies of a, a new, expanded, updated edition of a book I wrote back in 2005 called One Minute Answers to Skeptics. If you found it helpful just to get some concise, short ways of responding to atheist objections to God and the Bible, uh, today, I think you'll love this book. In fact, everything I shared with you this morning is pulled out of that book, but the book, in the book, I go through 50 objections. Today, we had time for about 10, maybe 12 objections, so if you'd like to get some further equipping uh, in that same vein, that same style of teaching, I think you'll enjoy that. We also have pre-recorded DVDs of this entire presentation if you'd like to share it with a friend. If you stop on my resource table on your way out to your car, you'll see that we've got 34 uh, DVDs out there on a variety of topics. Don't forget that we have a tiny little flash drive there on the table. You can get the entire table full of uh, videos on a flash drive the size of a AA battery if you're interested. You can take that thing home, stick it into a USB port on your television and pull up any of our videos whenever you'd like right there on your television or even stick it into a computer, watch the videos there or transfer the videos through your computer. We tell you how, we give you some directions uh, and put them on your iPad or your iPhone, your Samsung tablet, whatever you use nowadays to watch videos. So if you'd like to get further equipped to contend for the faith, we'd be happy to uh, help you do that. Let's go ahead and pray, and I think the worship team's gonna come up and close us in a final song. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this time together. Thank you for your word, and God, we're thankful that we can have a reasonable faith, a faith that stands up to the critics, a faith that has answers, a faith that's rooted and grounded in the truth, and God, we do pray that you would strengthen and embolden us to do what the book of Jude said, to contend for the faith. We don't want to sit on the sidelines as your word is attacked and questioned and slandered. We wanna be used by you to speak up, to answer the critics and point people to Jesus. So, Lord, we need your help to do that. Fill us with your Holy Spirit today, and God, we do ask for the salvation of anyone here today uh, who doesn't know you, God, we pray that you would draw them into a relationship with yourself and maybe even just for friends and family scattered around the country today, God, we ask that you'd be working in their hearts and minds to lead them to Jesus and it's in his name we pray, amen, amen. God bless you.